Everybody and welcome to season three, episode eighteen of History's Greatest Idiots, the show where we look back through all of human history and bring you all manner of utter stupidity, so that you can take lessons from mistakes that people have made and uh, never repeat those mistakes again. But who are we kidding? We're humans. We like making mistakes and we like making history rhyme. Which is, I've heard that phrase a lot recently. Like a lot of people have been saying, "Oh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it sure does like to rhyme." No, history repeats itself. Oh like, yeah, we're fucking seeing it over and over again. Not exactly, but but we are seeing a repetition for sure. Yeah, and I don't know if I like it rhyming or repeating. Either no. way, it just kind of needs to get different. <laughs> Either way, it needs to change. So yeah, joining me as ever is my amazing co-host Derek. Derek, how are you doing, my man? Ah, oh, gosh, I'm doing good. Um, good. I want to be back in Oregon, but I'm doing yeah. good. <laughs> you were on the Oregon Trail, and you didn't die of dysentery. You uh, you just enjoyed yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, did a little hike along a, a trail in uh, nice. on the coast. Saw a gray whale. Oh, it was That's amazing. so cool. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know what I was looking at. I thought it was a rock, and then <laughs> it moved. <That> <laughs> it was amazing. I, I, I truly like feel uh, blessed is a yeah. word I don't use, but it was awesome. And I, I got to like see that. two of two of my favorite people. <laughs> oh, that's really cool. And also, like, you get to when I think when you get to a place when you're like, oh, I'm considering moving here, and you see something like a gray whale, you're like, oh, fucking stop it. Like, I can't afford to move right now, but damn, why do you keep wanting me so much? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I thought crazy. about just staying, but, you yeah. know, you've got to eventually, you know, get home, find a place to shower, eat, stuff. Adult like that. things. Adult. Yeah, pay bills. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, thank you guys for joining us. Kimberly, Bright Eyes, thank you so much for joining us. Kimberly is our second patron, so thank you so much for joining us. I need to find... The Patreon page is not super intuitive. I've managed to find it, though. So Kimberly is our second patron. So, Kimberly, thank you for joining us as ever. Bright Eyes on YouTube. Also, a big shout out to our other Patreons, Jesse Christ, our OG patron, and Andrew Zvara. I don't know if the Z is quiet, silent, but Andrew Zvara or Zvara, thank you so much, guys, for being our patrons. We really, really appreciate it. We hope you're enjoying the posts. We've been posting a bunch of scripts recently, and I posted our original launch graphics which there's a funny story behind that because I paid for a bunch of graphics and then I was like, oh shit, I haven't paid for any launch graphics. I have to go back and pay for that again, whereas I could have gotten like one bulk order done. But yeah, the artist was good. She's she's really good. So. It was on brand. 
it was on brand and that's really all that matters never mind the fact that my wife was angry that i didn't get the money i got you know <laughs> we could have bought food with that money anyway uh so thank you guys kimberly um andrew and jesse thank you guys so much for being our amazing patrons if you would like to join and become a patron and get exclusive clothing and special stuff like gifts and things um then go to patreon.com slash history's greatest idiots and if you're with us for a year i will send out a very special and this is something that i'm going to announce now i'll send out a very special get out of jail or get out of stupidity free card which i've already designed i've already knocked up so if you're a patron with us kimberly uh, for a year you get a get out of stupidity free card it'll be laminated and sent to your home address and if you're with us as a patron for two years you get a not stupid certificate from the University of History's Greatest Idiots, and I will knock up a beautiful doctorate, and you oh, can nice. frame it and put it on your wall next to all of your actual qualifications, and <laughs> people will be like, oh, good, you're not stupid. That's, it's really nice that you've had that certified. So, yeah. It's an important certification to have. It is an important certification. Not all of us can get it, unfortunately. There are very stringent criteria basically paying us money so it's a bit like <laughs> it's a bit like the Golden Globes uh, in that sense. So, so thank you guys uh, so much for joining us. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, then go to at or is it X now? Fuck it. Yeah. If you want to follow us on whatever Twitter's called now, go to at Greatest Idiots. If you'd like to follow us on Instagram, go to at History's Greatest Idiots. Um, and we've had a couple of interesting things recently. So Feedspot, some sort of like aggregate website that does lists and stuff yeah yeah i don't know i, I googled lists because uh, i wanted yeah. to see if we were on any lists um, other than watch lists you know but, yeah, well yeah uh we're on a bunch of those uh libertarian watch lists interestingly um uh, and yeah feedspot did 100 greatest uh history podcasts and we're number 11 out of like thousands yes Top 100 history podcasts out of thousands. I know. We are number 11. I can't Math. believe it. I would have loved to have made the top 10. Then I could post oh. about it. But yeah. well. um, that's, that's really amazing. So however that happened, if you guys were involved in that, thank you so much. We are officially the 11th greatest history podcast at the moment. <laughs> and also we have been nominated for an independent podcast award in the comedy section. We're up against Clown Sex. Which is amazing. Um, that's a great name for a podcast. Holy shit. Like, how are we going to beat clown sex? It's, I, I don't know. How would you? <laughs> how could you ever possibly beat clown sex? That doesn't surprise me. You guys are awesome. Kimberly, thank you Aww. so much. We really appreciate the support, both financially and um, what's what's the other one? Um, non, non-financially, I guess. Uh, thank you so much for your support. Emotional, yes. We both need that significantly. Um, so yeah, lots going on, man. And also, I'm on cameo now i'm a cameo person which is what, is what is that so right cameo is a thing where celebrities and has-beens go <laughs> that's so harsh i'm on there and i'm making fun of it so you can find your favorite celebrity anyone okay. you can think of from like the past like seven 50 60 years that's still alive they've probably got a cameo page and you can get a personalized video sent to you um it can be like a birthday wish or it can be like, uh, thank you for this and stuff. And they charge money for, you know, these messages. So it might be $20, it might be $50. 
might be several hundred dollars, depending who you're talking to. Because you can, like, half of the cast of Breaking Bad are on there, the cast of The Office are on there, and you pay hundreds of dollars for them to say, hi, thanks for being a fan of mine, bye, thank you for the $500. (laughs) I'm on there now, and I am eight bucks, eight pounds. I think it's ten bucks. I'm charging ten bucks for a personalized in-character Monument Mythos or Nixonverse voiceover. So, analog horror fans, you can you can get Ro- Rockefeller saying something really obscene to nice. some random person you want. Yeah, I know, and that's what I'm doing. Like, who wants to hear from me, really, when they can get hundreds of hours free on the podcast? But if they want to pay me to do, like, a Monument Mythos voice, saying, I don't know, whatever the Gen Z kids are saying these days, I can do that, you know? There you go. Did you now? Did you set the price, or they set it for you? Oh no, I set the price. I could have like charged thousands of dollars, but I was like, no, no one's going to pay that. So, and I did say, as long as I can make ten ten pounds, I will call it a success. So, amazing, yeah, outstanding. Thank you. Yeah, it is a real validation of actually putting in hundreds of hours of uh, work on on like voice acting. It's is finally paying off, or it will pay off. Maybe we'll see. I'm jealous. Um, the only the only voice acting work I can get is here and the the one podcast I made up myself. That was really good. <laughs> I I really um I did love that podcast of yours, but I I understand why you had to stop it. Like the hours you put into original audio content, it's so much. I used to do that, and I I lasted three episodes with my own thing. It's a lot. It was fun, know? but yeah, definitely so much work. <laughs> so much work. But you know what's not work is finding idiots because that's super easy because they're just <laughs> fucking everywhere. So Derek, who have you got for us this episode? Who is your idiot? Well, I was I was kind of all over the place back and forth and okay. I, I kept running into people saying uh oh, well, I want to go back to the good old days, the good old days. I kept hearing the good old days and I was thinking yeah. Well, what the hell are the good old days? What is, you know, uh, a great again? What was so great about before? Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> well, uh, I, I think back in the day, a lot of people had really bad ideas, like uh, this Harvard Medical School professor that I'm going to talk to you about today. Awesome. And when you think about it that way, I don't want to go back to the good old days. I want to go to the better days. Exactly. And The guy I have for you today was a doctor that received most of his attention starting around 1875 with his book that was published called Sex in Education. Uh, What? Yeah, it would be cool. But it's Uh, not not as weird as you think, but it's totally worse. I mean, it's a terrible title. That's the kind of title you're like, okay, we need to arrest the author before I've even opened the front page. Wait until you hear the whole title. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) So he was born Edward Hammond Clark in Norton, Massachusetts on the 2nd of February, 1820. He was the youngest of four children of Reverend Pitt Clark and Mary Jones Clark. His father, also a Harvard graduate, was the minister of the First Congregational Society in Norton for 42 years. And I guess that makes him a legacy at Harvard. Yeah, I would say so. His mother was a poet. As mm. a young man, uh, Edward had some health issues, mostly uh, digestional, respiratory combined issues. But he is, pressed is he on. Me? Uh, maybe <laughs> I've got both of those. <laughs> uh. <laughs> it, oh, yes, similar. Yeah, some similar issues. 
Yeah, but, wow. Yeah, I, ooh, I don't want to. Now I feel bad. No, no, but I'm not. Fine, but fine. I'm not after him for those. It's different stuff. Anyway, okay. yeah. So he's got these digestive issues, but he's pressing on with his education anyway, which is kind of ironic when we get to that part. His mm. undergraduate studies go really well at Harvard, but okay. during his junior year, he becomes so ill that he can't even attend his own commencement. Oh shit, that's bad. But he still graduated first in his class with honors in 1841. So wow, so he's a smart cookie. Smart but ill. Okay, yeah. Uh, wow. What, what what did they call that back then? Sickly. Sickly, yeah. Um, there's other words. I don't know if feeble's the right word, but it, there's like a very specific term for it. Not invalid either. I think he'll use it later. Yeah. Probably <laughs> <laughs> when he's describing other people oh, uh, following his time at Harvard, he decides to pursue medicine and he's off to study at the University of Pennsylvania, where he receives his medical doctorate in 1846. Good. OK. Uh, he spends a lot of time after that traveling around in Europe and stu- studying um, uh, ot- autology, which is okay. the uh, I'll save you a Google search if you're like me. And don't know stuff. That's the study of uh, ears, not yeah. necessarily ear, nose, and throat, just ear disease. Specifically, ears. Yeah, um, that's good. A um, lot of breakthroughs happening in in Europe around about this time. You know, we're discovering all sorts of medical advancements, and you know, stuff's happening as a result of wars. You know, Crimean War and pasteurization, and all of this stuff like is coming through, and uh, also. Uh, mid 1840s Europe is not a great time to be going around Europe because there are revolutions happening everywhere. So, well, I guess it's good that he came back to the U.S. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I would say so. So he he does a little bit of traveling around there, comes back to the U.S., settles down in Boston, and instead of studying years, he specializes as a primary doctor with a little bit of focusing on a, on on. Uh, autology. He earns a, a solid reputation as a quality general practitioner and kind of becomes well known for effectively treating illness and diseases with modern medications, which is pretty cool. That's really cool. Yeah, we like people using cutting edge uh, medical procedures at this time because a lot of stuff was very archaic. So good for him. That's great. Not just randomly cutting limbs off as fast yeah, as possible. He's leeches doing... on people or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> doing good things. <laughs> yeah. He's a general practitioner, pretty well known. Most of his patients are upper middle class. He's actually the the doctor for an um, an abol- abolitionist at the time. Okay, and I failed to write that in my notes because I'm a clown. <laughs> um, <laughs> he. Then goes on to become, um, whoops, I skipped a little step. That's okay. Bear with me here, folks. That's all right. Um, according to most accounts, he was the epitome of a great physician and described uh, by his patients as inquiring, observant, reflective, and judicial, which is super good for a doctor. Yeah, that's exactly what you want from a doctor, apart from like, Maybe like having the word empathy in there. That's exactly what I want from a, f- a physician. I'm seeing that's great for the 1800s. Empathy yeah. didn't exist. I don't think. No, well, no, no, it wasn't a, a, th- a thing that we were familiar with at that point. So, it was like, oh, oh, you're sad, are you? Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> you big fucking pansy. Yeah. Um. <laughs> 
Well, naturally, the next phase of his career is to teach his skills to the next generation of medical professionals. So he becomes a professional of uh, materium medical at the Harvard Medical School in 1855. And he holds that position until 1872. I mean, that's great. You want the best people teaching. This is exactly what you want. You want people who have got experience of the world, which this guy has got. He's been all over Europe. He's specialized in certain things. He's seen a lot of different patients, although they're generally a bit richer. But he's also got a great approach. He's using cutting-edge technology, and he's a smart physician as well as being someone who's a little ahead of his time. This is exactly the person that you need to be learning from. Exactly. And around this time, there's a lot of stuff going on in the field of education. And there's education itself is a real hot topic in the 1870s. How much education people should have Mm. is one of those topics. One of the, the big questions that Dr. Clark had opinions on, of course, was how much education women should have. Uh, Edward was part of a group that believed um, the established consensus that in the case of boys, education should extend beyond the simple reading and writing demanded in the colonial days and should extend to math and science and philosophy. Mm -hmm. However, he believed that girls had finishing schools and schools that taught home economics and other subjects were not good for them. Not good for them? Is that his medical opinion? Yes, it actually was. (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, Dr. Clark found that the idea of educating women was dangerous as well as disturbing. And he believed that uh, it was bad for their health. Oh, so he's the Taliban. Okay, I I understand where we're going now. (laughs) A little bit. Holy shit. Now, perhaps unaware of his stance on women's education at the time, going only off of his position as the medical professor at Harvard and his Mm. solid reputation as a doctor, in 1872, the New England Women's Club, an organization of progressive Boston women, invited Clark to speak at one of their functions. Okay. (laughs) I don't like where this is going. Dr. Clark chose as the topic for his speech the appropriate education for girls, and the focus of his lecture was that educating girls was fraught with peril because if girls <laughs> because if girls during the ages of 13 to 17 spent too much time learning, the efforts they put into developing their brains would hinder their needed growth in their ovaries and uterus. What the fuck is he talking about? I don't know. He's That's, the doctor. I mean, we have gone from respected, intelligent, medical professional to if they think too much, their wombs will shrink, which is like fucking batshit insane stuff. <laughs> what is going I, on? It took a turn, right? And this is a good question from Kimberly. And it's a, it's an honest question at this point. Did he know any women at the time? I don't know if this man is in any way familiar with women whatsoever. Even for the 19th century, this is fucking insane. Oh my god! You know what? I didn't. I didn't find that out. I probably should have. <laughs> um, well, <laughs> I don't believe it. It's amazing. Yeah. His his reasoning for this theory is that um, he he observed disease was kind of running rampant at the time, and he attributed some of it to food and fashion. And he acknowledged that 
perhaps cake and pie contributed in part to some of the digestional and disease issues, and maybe even corsets and some of the binding clothes were to blame for some of the problems. That's a fair argument because, you know, especially in developing women when their bodies are still growing, you know, corsets can be quite dangerous things, especially if they're bound really tightly. Then that naturally compresses organs and shit. But, uh, and actually, you know what? The argument about cake and pies. You know, we're talking about flour, we're talking about pastry, gluten. Then, yeah, those are irritants to some people. So he's not far off, but I don't think I like where he's going to go next with it. So you sure don't. (laughs) (laughs) He says all of those things are problems, but But... they can't all be explained by those issues. No, he says women's problems that are emerging, I think, are due to increased education. <clears throat> His theory um, was kind of straightforward. Okay. Quote, brain work and stomach work interfere with each other if attempting uh, if attempted together. I think uh, brain work and mouth work are interfering with each other in his case because that <laughs> shit doesn't make any fucking sense. Uh, he goes on to say the uh, regimen of college arranged for boys, if imposed on girls, would foster uh, even more disease. That's that's so crazy. Kimberly makes a really interesting point here, and this is actually something that applies. It's really prevalent right now. They're taking le- he's taking legitimate concerns and legitimate science and things that are based in truth, the grain of truth, and then he's just smearing it in bullshit. Yep. And like bias and absolute no scientific. Like, all he has to say, like, clear your position up, right? All you have to say is, I don't like women. And then we're like, okay, we get it, right? You're a sexist piece of shit, right? That's all he has to say. But what he's, he can't do that. So he's like, let me tell you scientifically why women shouldn't think. And it's just, <laughs> it's so fucking insane. That yeah. I'm amazed he wasn't struck off even in the 19th century from being a doctor. Like, this is stupid. Harvard should have sacked him. I'm pretty certain they were taking women at this point. So Yeah, it they just kind of left him left him alone and God. We, yeah, we'll we'll get to stuff. Um <laughs> so he thinks that uh, education is putting girls uh, at a disadvantage. He says boys that enter the world uh, more fully developed than girls and they withstand the rigors of school and college uh, better because they, they, they're able to turn into men with functioning reproductive organs quicker and girls simply can't do both learning and have reproductive and digestive. I, it, uh, I don't know. It's, I mean, if they learn too much, they're doomed to a lifetime of sickliness. That's what he says. Sickliness. Mm-hmm. Wow, not like, oh, well, if you learn too much, you won't be able to have children. He's saying, no, if you learn too much, you will get ill. That's really dangerous thinking and and stuff there. And also, I I just find it hilarious that he's like, you know those boys that leave school and go straight to college? They're super fucking mature. Like those are some smart <laughs> cookies. It's like anyone knows that like any 18-year-old, okay, you can be tried as an adult at that point, but I don't know many 18-year-olds that are that fucking adult at that point. Like, they, they haven't... You don't grow up many, many years. Like, your 20s as a man, a lot of the time, 
are the years where you're allowed to kind of fuck up a lot because society's like you kind of finding your feet you're a man you're kind of an idiot this is what these years are for and it carries men men continue to fuck up throughout their lives and i would say and i don't think i'm wrong in saying this that men fuck up on a scale that sometimes far outweighs women um you know i just that's my experience of the world i'm sure people will possibly have a go at me for that but I don't think it would be in any situation fair to say that an 18-year-old boy is incredibly mature compared to an 18-year-old woman. That's just insane. I think it's pretty ridiculous. I was a, <laughs> n- yeah, I was in no way <laughs> as awesome as I was at 18. Oh yeah, and so was I. I was, I was so handsome and muscular. no way mature. <clears throat> <laughs> no, I was not mature. I'm not mature now. I'm pushing like 45. <laughs> yeah, no, me either. So after his speech uh, in front of the women's organization there in 1872, I forgot he was he, doing this in front of women. <laughs> yeah, he he's like, I got to get the word out to everybody now, oh, and I'm going to no. write my book. And oh my in 1873, Doctor Clark publishes his book, Sex in Education. Uh, semicolon, a fair chance for the girls. Oh, fuck right off, you prick. <laughs> a fair chance for the ladies. Come so, on, ladies, pick up those wash baskets. What, what the fuck? <laughs> God. So in, in that book, he discussed his views on the education of boys and girls, and it, it caused a bit of controversy, especially <laughs> among the women's activists uh, that were happening around that time. I am not surprised. The crap thing is, is it didn't stop it from selling out in a week. Of course not, because, look, Andrew Tate's still around. The, if, men like that, who, like, use pseudo-intellectual, oh, I'm a doctor, you should listen to me, or I've read this book, you should, I'm Ben Shapiro, I can say clever words, you should listen to me. There are so many smart assholes out there who actually aren't that fucking smart. Russell Brand, if you know what's going on in the world at the moment. Uh, you Americans won't know. There's a big dispatches thing going on over here on Channel 4. Google Russell Brand after this episode. You won't like what you find. He's oh, no. another person who has taken their platform of normality, built it into a kind of a conspiracy theorist slash healthy living thing, and now a bunch of terrible stuff is coming up uh, out about them. Like Damn. Really awful. Like He could be looking at lots of prison time. Um, yeah, so there are, there is particularly now, and it's always existed, but I guess it's very high, high profile right now in 2023. There is a plethora of supposedly smart fucking arseholes, idiots out there that are basically just spouting the most hateful stuff against the people that they think are, are easy targets, whether it's people in the LGBT community, whether it's women, whether it's, you know, trans folk, whether it's immigrants, whether it's ethnic minorities or whatever you want to call it. It's crazy that this is still published back in like the 1870s or whatever. That's fucking insane. Yeah, and it sucks that it sold out so quick. And you're you're right. People like to buy that sort of stuff. I kind of figured maybe it was a little bit of a misunderstanding. They saw sex and girls, and they just bought it up. <laughs> maybe. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> uh, I always oh. thought Russell Brand would end up as a cult leader. I mean, yeah, he's been behaving like so one too. recently too. So yeah. Uh, but yeah, please carry on. It's amazing it sold out. So, how many prints did he sell out? How many printings? Oh, um, 17. Fuck me, yeah, Jesus. 
so in his book, he, uh, like the other anti-feminists at the time, he uses Darwinism to justify his beliefs in the inherent biological differences between men and women, and then kind of really leaned into that idea that letting women undergo the same education as men would harm women's reproductive organs. I bet Darwin would have fucking hated that. I know. This is not based in scientific rigor at all. He also used a, a trip to Halifax that he took to support his theory, where he noted that boys of 11 grew as tall and broad-shouldered as 16-year-olds from Massachusetts, and the young girls, girls of 10 and 11, were there who looked almost like women. That is, like ideal women. Creepy as fuck. Um, yeah. Because they were so calm and undisturbed. <clears throat> so... Um... Is he saying that Halifax, Nova Scotia has got shit education, therefore the women are healthier? Is yeah. that what he's saying? As yeah, opposed he's... to, I live in Boston, people are living in grinding poverty, that's why they're not taller and healthier. He, Yeah, the reason he concluded that Halifax had this situation with the, the men and women is because there were no public schools. Um, okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> Just no. Bah. Eh. He just takes these leaps. It's yeah. insane. It ignores everything else. Like, is Halifax on the coast? Uh, is it? I guess it would have been like Halifax, Nova Scotia. I guess it might not have been developed as as developed as Boston at this point. So I'd imagine there is less like crowding, overcrowding, less disease, better quality of food. Maybe, maybe probably fish. Um, yeah. You know, maybe there's more dairy in their diets. That that has nothing to do with schooling. That's just the availability of nutrition. Really. It's just so weird. It's but so fucking weird. Also in his book, he added some of his research from his time in Europe. Uh, research, okay. He He argued that girls flourished when they dropped out of school as adolescents and pursued studies that were more leisurely at home in Europe. Um, um, now... Remember when I said he had health issues growing up and he missed that his commencement thing? Mm -hmm. You might think that that would have played a part in his thinking, that maybe he was a studious but sickly little youngster there uh, that suffered from the maladies of digestion throughout his life, and he studied really hard, that maybe he thought, oh, that's why. Yeah. and But it... it he didn't put that together at all either, that he was a guy and he studied and he still had the problems. So his thing oh. was total bullshit. But anyway, while his book did sell out, it didn't go unopposed because Mary Putnam Jacoby wrote an essay that was eventually published into a book that was called The Question of the Rest, <clears throat> the Question of Rest for Women During Menstruation, which was a response to his uh, book, Sex and Education. Wow. Uh, in her book, she collected extensive psychological data on women throughout their menstrual cycle that included muscle strength tests uh, before and after menstruation and right. concluded that there was nothing in the nature of menstruation to imply the necessity or even desirability of rest. And then in yeah. 1876, she became the first woman to receive the Harvard University's um, Boistlin Prize for that essay. That, I mean, so, that's great because it's based in actual evidence and scientific, you know, uh, testing. So data, good. 
data. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. That has been collected impartially and over a, a long period of time, as as opposed to I'm a doctor. I think this, therefore, that's facts. Like I'm good for her. That's great. Yeah, and so a year later in 1877, Dr. Edward Hammond Clark, having been diagnosed with cancer in the lower part of his intestines, uh, passed away. Unfortunately, the influence of his book lasted long after his death. Like I said, the book went through 17 printings, and the American Association of University Women, uh, founded in 1883, spent decades funding research to debunk his theories that, that... permeated uh medical science so it's it's really sad that they had to fund the research when he did none you know like he was just just accepted he's a man therefore we'll accept his point of view um that's crazy and it's it's a bit like every other person who's written a book and then had like massive influence on society afterwards despite the fact that it's like based on hearsay or or their own opinion or whatever that's crazy um, yep. I, I mean, I, I shouldn't have been that shocked because, I mean, we're living in a world where Jordan Peterson is walking around saying the most random fucking shit, and he's still Professor Jordan Peterson. But like that is really to to have gone from such a high bar of reputable standing to absolute batshit drivel based in absolutely nothing other than like not even pseudo science. Like he just seems to be making that shit up. Like that is crazy, and the the effect he's had. I, you're not just talking about like having to debunk this. This this will feed into legislators who don't want to give women the vote, who don't want to give women more rights, and that will have prolonged the suffrage and the struggles of women for years longer than it should have been because of this asshole. Right. So that's yeah. Um. I mean, I, I have to go quite high in this guy. He didn't kill anyone, but it's the lasting influence, I think, that we have to to give with this guy. I think like an 84 for this. Like, he is bad, and he didn't see it at all. Either that or he was doing it because he knew he'd make money, which he clearly must have done because 17 editions, that's, that's impressive bullshit well, he, levels right there. I mean, he died in 1877 so he didn't really keep making the money off of it too no. long no no he i, just I didn't like the competition of women i think i, I think so and i i wonder because i you didn't mention whether he was married or not um or if he sorry had kids. no that's okay but my th- thought about that is how would his kids have felt about accepting that kind of money like if they had any opinion that differed even slightly from their fathers, would they have been comfortable accepting? And his, his like his ancestors, because they will have been earning money from that for a while. Like he might have earned them a tidy sum. And I wonder how they feel about that legacy. You know, and as yeah. Kimberly's pointing out in the comments, there are men that still believe this shit today. So unfortunately, yeah. It's it's crazy. Um yeah seeing anything on whether or not he was married or procreated at all here yeah might have just been a so arrogant he didn't want to spend any time with women whether it was in the bedroom or not but yeah wow one absolute asshole probably he's probably up there as one of the worst professors harvard's ever had i would imagine and certainly one of the worst professors america's ever had because that lasting influence on misogyny and 
like the repression of women, that's a whole legacy you don't want in your life. I think anytime you're trying to take away education from a group of people, you're an asshole. Yeah. Why? <laughs> Why are you trying to stop anyone getting educated? Uh, no lady was touching. That's a good point, actually. It's the Andrew Tate argument where he put out a thing on Twitter or X where he said, <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't sleep with vaccinated women. And a woman instantly responded straight away with, good, the vaccine works. She's <laughs> um, like, that is fucking brilliant. But yeah, no lady was touching this guy. Holy shit. That is that is kind of crazy. Like that's really kind of fired me up a little bit. I it, and my guy's very different from from this asshole. Very different kind of stupidity. But that's like he and he's smart enough to know that he's wrong, but he's ignoring it essentially. Oh, okay. So that's that's what I think with, with your guy. Whereas Ricky Dozen, who I'm about to talk to you about, was stupid on so many levels. That actually, um, but also hugely influential. He's one of these people that is massively influential. But outside of the Western world, it's it's like he's hugely influential outside of the Western world, and therefore people in the West don't necessarily hear about it so much. But this man was Japan's first post-war hero. After the after the war was over, they had Ricky Dozen and they had Godzilla, and that's it. Okay. So, yeah. I'm going to learn something here. You are going to learn so much. So, I want to talk to you today about Ricky Dozen, the icon of Japan. So, Ricky Dozen is a rare example of a person we've covered in this podcast who has multiple names, who isn't a professional con man. Well, in the sense <laughs> that being a wrestler is a lifelong con, but it's a lot less like pernicious. Like, you're not trying to steal anyone's money, you know. Well, guess you are trying to get some money out of them but you're not doing it out of lies you're doing it out of entertainment and there's this kind of mutual contract where people understand that they're getting entertained therefore they part with their money as opposed to they think they're going to get something out of it therefore they give you money and then nothing happens with it so ricky dozen was born kim sin rak on november the 14th 1924 in hongwon county kangyonan prefecture korea which is now South Ham, Ham, Hamgyong, North Korea. So he was from North Korea, what is now North Korea. Okay. Uh, before the craziness that is North Korea now, when it was an actual functioning country. Um, he was the youngest son of Kim Sok Tee, the owner of a Korean farm with a Confucian tradition. So I, I have to explain this a little bit. Confucianism, which permeates a lot of culture from from china and the surrounding countries uh confucius philosophy in farming specifically talks about no pesticides and producing stuff as naturally as possible to the point where they didn't like some of them didn't even use fertilizer which is kind of crazy so not even like oh cow poo no get that off the plants like hmm. that that kind of that's how incredibly focused they were on maintaining this philosophical stance on farming which is that's kind of amazing yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess that could be good. Seems like it would I, be. I, I think you need a certain amount of nitrogen in the soil for it to be productive. So the more shit, the better, as far as I can understand. So, uh, yeah, you should be pooing everywhere. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and also, he was uh, the son of this man's wife, Chon Chi. 
Um, he held his father as his father had suffered from ill health, whilst his mother and older brothers tended to the farm. Kim participated in Sirium, that's double S-I-R-E-U-M, in his youth. It's a type of wrestling in which um, the two combatants wear like long fabric belts um, around their waist, a little similar to sumo, but it's like flowing, so it's not quite as nappy-like. Um, and one th- uh, thigh grip. Uh, so they grip their opponent's bell and deploy various techniques to send them to a ground. So it's like a cross between sumo and jujitsu, basically, okay. is that you're trying to throw them, suplex them a little bit, but they're also wearing like garments that are designed for you to grab onto or, or whatever it might be. Okay. So, yeah, very you have handles on them. Yeah, essentially, yeah, it's like, like handles, but made of fabric. And yeah, it's, it's a whole thing that's still going to this day. Um, and uh, after placing third in a local competition, spoke to Minnesoku, Minnesoki, sorry, Momoto, the father, uh, Momota, I should say, the father in law of a Japanese man from Omura who had moved to Korea to become a policeman. Momuta, uh, Momuta, I'm gonna get really, it's gonna, I've only got to say it a few more times and then I can just say the one word. I was going to say, thank goodness I'm not doing this one. I thought I had these down. I practiced these and it's not working. Uh, Momoto was interested in sumo and supported the Nishinoseki stable, which uh, he recruited several Korean boys to for the stable. They recruit sumo wrestlers super young in the sport and then like train them up. And I've got to be honest, the sumo training method, it's much more modernized now, but back in the day it used to be Get up, eat a shitload of rice, train, more rice, fall asleep, wake up, do a little bit more training, eat rice, fall asleep, wake up, do a bit of training, eat rice, fall asleep. They're doing that so that they, because when you eat masses of carbohydrates and then fall asleep again, you get fat. So, and they were doing that deliberately so they were bulking these people up. So that's how they used to train sumo wrestlers before you know, like modern training methods came along. It's kind of crazy to me that like, you, we need you to be an athlete. Let's get shitloads of carbohydrates and energy into you. And then you can have a sleep. I'm like, okay, I can get on board with this training. Yes, please. <laughs> um, uh, mom. Uh, so who's interested in sumo recruited a bunch of boys. However, um, Ricky Dozen's family, well, he's not called that now, um, refused to let him go to Japan due to his uh, responsibility of caring for his, sickly father um however after his father's death in 1939 sinrak left for japan the following year over his mother's objections they didn't want him to go still uh i think they just wanted him to stay and work on the farm he wasn't having any of it he's like i'm good at this athletic thing i'm chasing it all the way i can so once he joined the stable ricky dozen had his first sumo match at match in june 1940 but due to his listing in the rankings as being from Korea, he began to be bullied and racially discriminated against by his stablemates. So uh-huh. if you know anything about the relationship between Koreans and Japanese around this time, we're talking World War II, 1940, um, the Japanese saw Koreans as less than. Didn't, didn't they go through and just slaughter and murder Chinese and Koreans in yep. that area? Okay. Oh, they still deny that. They still deny the, the rape of Nanking which is a, his, a famously disgusting mass murder and like essentially a genocide and, and 
destruction of this city over a period of weeks. The Japanese still deny that happened in the same way that they refuse to apologize for the incredibly poor treatment of prisoners of war, um, where they basically saw them as scum because they'd surrendered. So they just starved them to death and made them work to death and stuff. And the Japanese still not apologize for that. It's Super important remember and acknowledge the bad shit you did with the good shit you did. Exactly. It's really important to apologize for the mistakes you've made in the past. And unfortunately, the Koreans, uh, for a lot of their history with Japan, particularly around the time of Imperial Japan, were treated awfully to the point where Koreans living in Japan actually were legislated against and were treated as second-class citizens. Like it was actually part of the law to discriminate against Koreans at this time. I can't remember the exact wording for it, but there is a term for it, and it is not pleasant at all. Um, so, yeah. A story uh, So, um, a story was born in Japan um, where they basically had to invent a new identity for him, and he became the adopted son of Minosuke uh, Momota. Ricky Dozen's name became Mitsuhiro Momota, and his birthplace was changed to Omura. So he was no longer Korean. They just, just like that. Yep, they were like, oh, you remember that guy? Yeah, that guy's gone now. Here's this new guy that looks exactly like him, but he's <laughs> Japanese now. That's messed so, up. <laughs> that is so messed up. Look, he looks Japanese. Well, are you sure about that? Yeah, from Amura. So, and this is someone you've adopted as your son. Yeah, no more questions, please. Uh, but for the podcast, because this is his second name now, I'm just going to keep calling him Ricky Dozen, which... Okay in Japanese, translates to Rugged Mountain Road, which... Okay. Yeah, I know. It's very specific, although I'm I'm familiar with this shit, because in Welsh, our Welsh hero who tried to free us from the, the oppression of the English was called Owain Glyndor, and Glyndor means mountain water. So, yeah. Huh. Uh, we've got a bunch of names like that, where I'm from. Um, his quick rise in the ranks in sumo began to cause envy amongst his senior stablemates and thus began his troubles with the stablemaster. According to the book, The Ricky Dozan Years, 1951 to 63, um, by Harua Yamaguchi and Koji Miyamoto and Scott Teal. Random, random Scott <laughs> Teal in there. Yeah, just random. Just a random there. Scott. Yeah, just a <laughs> random guy. Uh, Ricky Dozan took pride in his substantial contribution to the stable up to the time uh, up to that point, while Tamanori, the table master, Taman, sorry, Taman Aomi, there we go, became annoyed at his selfishness. Now, Ricky Dozen is a selfish prick. This is the start of it, but actually a lot of it is because he's like becoming a bit brash, and actually he's been so poorly treated by his family, uh, the Japanese people at this point, he's got a chip on his shoulder. And that As chip is going to get... Yeah, I, I understand it. I completely get it. That chip is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. It's going to be a fucking boulder by the end of his life, which isn't long. Um, yeah, so Ricky Dozen application for financial support for the stable was refused after a heated argument ensued. Ricky Dozen decided to retire entirely from Sumo and cut off his top knot to officially leave. That's like a big thing, you know, That's like, like good... you are not coming back. Yeah. Yeah. I'm done. It's over. Right. Done. Bang. Cut it off. Um, he competed in 23 grand sumo tournaments and rose to the third highest rank of Seki Waki. Uh Seki Wake. I, I don't know. That's a but cool title. It's a cool title. <laughs> Not quite Yokozuna, but it's a, it's a good title. 
Um, but because of his non-Japanese heritage, there would always be a glass ceiling that he could not surpass. That's why it's officially mandated discrimination right there. You're not Japanese, therefore you can't be the best. Um, as early as 1950, Ricky Dozan involved himself in side businesses that sometimes crept through the grey areas of the law. During uh, this time when the Korean War broke out, so we're into the 50s now, um, he began working for Americans as a black marketeer, selling appliances, furniture, and even cars from U.S. soldiers departing for the front. So they were based in Japan on the bases. He was buying their shit and then reselling it to fellow Jap- well, fellow Japanese people. Uh, later, though, he left this venture and searched for a proper job. So Ricky Dozan tried to return to sumo, but was not permitted because he cut his top knot off and he was disgraced. His only means of support was Shinsaka Nita, who was a patron during his sumo days. Now, I should explain the thing of patrons in Japanese culture, particularly when it comes to sports like wrestling and sumo and combat sports like that. There are patrons that pay and support for these athletes who pay for their meals they sometimes pay for their lodgings and stuff it's evolved over time but a lot of these patrons are wealthy people and no one can quite work out where their wealth has come from because they never pay any tax do you know where i'm going with that um they they sometimes have a lot of tattoos oh sometimes they have appendages missing is it like triad people yakuza are you allowed to say oh yeah yeah you allowed to mention yeah. them? Oh yeah, like I'm <laughs> fine. Like they can't, they can't hurt me. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, the Yakuza, I think, would be kind of. They're not going to come after some some ginger guy living in England. I don't. I think I'm fine. Um, so <laughs> Ricky Dozen tried to return sumo. He wasn't permitted. His patron found him a blue collar job as a supervisor at this construction site he owned. But behind the scenes, Nita was a boss of the local Yakuza and was heavily involved in the sumo world, specifically rigging bouts so that he could make a fortune and launder it through his construction business. So, God, it's yeah. funny how organized crime is the same everywhere you go. Everywhere you go. It's <laughs> like, we've got a shitload of money, what do we do? Ah, let's buy a laundry, literally, and launder the money. Um, yeah, so that's that's what he was doing. Um, he took big cuts of the show's box office, and his modus operandi was replicated later in boxing and wrestling during post-war Japan. Um, some assert that this practice still goes on today, and it does. Let's, let's not like pretend that the Yakuza don't have their their fingers in every single pie because there was a big scandal in um, sumo a few years ago. I don't know if it was like maybe 10 years ago at this point, but basically um, a bunch of sumo wrestlers died and they were being mistreated by this gym. And in Japan, some police forces only investigate crimes if they are 100% guaranteed of getting a conviction and the rest of the time they're like no don't want to bother so they just sort of leave it and uh, these people were killed by the Yakuza so uh, Ricky Dozen was invited to join a wrestling tour headed by promoter and wrestler Bobby Bruns hoping that people would be enticed to attend the shows by including Japanese wrestlers now at this point he's not a trained wrestler he's only ever done sumo and this traditional Korean martial art thing that he's done um, the story of um, Ricky Doza meeting Harold Sakata, uh, who's Tosh Togo, a.k.a. Oddjob, from James Bond's 1964 film Goldfinger, the guy with the hat that threw around and it chopped people's heads off and that. 
Um, he met him in a cabaret club, apparently, and that being the reason he joined wrestling. Um, that's been disproven, but the idea of Ricky Dozan meeting people in the cabaret slash casino is definitely a thing because he's a gambling addict at this point. Uh-huh. Starting in wrestling, he's surrounded by people who have a lot of money, patrons, and he develops a taste for gambling, which will be with him his entire life, along with smoking and drinking and women and punching everyone everyone he punches everyone i cannot stress this enough whether and not even worked punches as a wrestler he just hunt, hits everyone it's crazy um just so out punching people huh just p- drunkenly getting into fights it's hilarious okay. <laughs> uh the, the tour consisted this wrestling tour of mostly foreign wrestlers and the appearance of two japanese judo experts uh, with only one month of training under his belt of professional wrestling, Ricky Dozan made his pro debut on October the 28th, 1951. He would have been as green as grass because he knew barely anything. He could basically take a bump and throw a punch, and that's that's it. So sounds like the life of the party. Yes. Um, but sometimes the parties ended because he started throwing hands. That's That's when the problems start. When he's yeah. basically Rick James, only <laughs> Japanese and, a, and like a trained sumo wrestler. Um, so he would have been green as grass. He later admitted that um, he had been out of breath during the whole match and uh, honestly expected to die at any moment because he was a sumo wrestler. He wasn't trained for wrestling as a cardiovascular sport, despite what you might think about these like massively muscular guys. They have to have cardio engines in them. So they often do like five, six, seven miles of jogging a day Yuck. in the gym because they have to go a lot. It's it's a lot. So yeah. uh, f- from late 1951 to early 1954, American-style pro wrestling became dominant in Japan. And in early 1952, a Japanese heavyweight title belt was created and worn by Ricky Dozen and public uh, publicity photos uh, were taken before he embarked on a trip to Hawaii and San Francisco in California. Um, I should also point out, he's deliberately, he's realized, the problem with Ricky Dozen is he's realized he's popular. He's super, super popular with Japanese audience at this point. It's getting more popular with each time he appears on one of these tours. And he's stopped training. He's stopped learning, like, I'm going to learn this new move, or I'm going to learn how to take this move differently. It's like, no, I'm fine as I am. I don't need to improve. Let's just go out and drink. Let's go out and gamble. And I really like American cigars. So oh. I'm just going to smoke the shit out of them. Fuck training. I'm fine. Um, so so he's, he's like the Japanese wrestling version of the babe. He's, the big, he's basically the that. Yeah, fuck it. <laughs> I am good enough as I am. I'm not going to train harder. And it, it, it's another problem as well. So um, in a now proven exaggerated account of his trip to the United States, Ricky Dozen told reporters that he had arrived back in Japan. I had more than 200 matches in America and only three, re- three wrestlers defeated me. Leo Nomin... Oh, fuck me. Nominlini, Fred Atkins and Tom Rice. No idea who any of those fuckers are. In fact, I lost to Tom Rice only by disqualification. That rice was not good to eat. Said, <laughs> it's like he knows pro wrestling already. Like he's getting the fucking catchphrases in. I love that. Um, in a tournament in Hawaii promoted by um, Al Karasik 
in November 1953, Rukidozan, with his limited skills, was given the opportunity to challenge for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship, facing a true master of grappling arts, Luthez. Luthez is kind of a legend in the world of wrestling. He wrestled from the time he was 21 until he was 73 years old. Um, his last match was in 1991, and he began, yeah, um, he began uh, wrestling, like I say, when he was 21, when his first world title, when he was like 25 or 23 or something. Uh, this guy wrestled forever. He was genius. He was a brilliant wrestler, all technical. He was also one of these guys that could shoot, so he would break someone's arm if he just didn't like the way it was going. Like He would fuck people up. And when he joined the army, the army realized how good he was at hand-to-hand -hand combat during the Second World War, so they were like, do you want to train our guys? And he was like, yeah, okay, I'll show them how to do some judo shit. Um, <laughs> so that's Luthez. He's also one of the most miserable fuckers in the history of wrestling. I don't like Stone Cold Steve Austin. Uh, he's not a proper wrestler. Oh, shut up, Lou. The last match <laughs> Luthez had in 1991, he broke his hip in the match. Yeah, it's fucking messed up. I've watched that match. I'm like, there's no way this guy's 73-year-old. He's so fast. Like He's changing levels. You know, like those high school wrestlers do? It's amazing. A 73-year-old man. 73. But yeah. still at 73, broke a hip. It still broke a hip, yeah. But and not man, in the back. He... No, not, not, uh, <laughs> not in a bad way. <laughs> it was still pretty fucked up, though. Anyway, so him and Luthers wrestled to a 61-minute time limit draw, which is called a Broadway, I know. Ricky Dozen had to be carried for this match because within five minutes he was blown up. I was like, Lou, help me. Fucking hell. So Luthez dragged his sorry ass for like 60 minutes to make that's him look really good. So long. I know. And that's that's not uncommon. There are still 60 minute matches to this day. They call them Broadways, where you go the full time limit. And Ric Flair used to have them every night. That is like a lot of cardio, years. man. That's a it's, lot of cardio. It's like soccer style cardio. It is. It's the one of the most I, I did wrestling. <laughs> for years in in like university and i tell you there is no exercise like it because every part of you is moving you are throwing yourself everywhere and you do not take breaks even rest holds you're like you're not really sat down so it's yeah. crazy yikes anyway, yeah it's it's a lot and he's a sumo wrestler so he's not trained for endurance he's trained for bursts of power and, and eating it. rice and napping and eating rice and napping also i should point out ricky dozen is five foot ten he's quite tall for you know the, the before there's a period in japan where america comes in and brings in beef beef burgers cows and introduces that into the japanese diet and all of a sudden japanese people shoot up in height in like concurrent generations but at this point in time five foot ten was you know there was a good height he was 250 pounds um, and he wasn't fat it was mostly muscle, so he is carrying a lot of weight around with him. So that's a guy that blows up really quickly if you get into run or do anything, especially as he's smoking and drinking. That guy's my size, like just a few years ago. I I know, yeah. But that was and, fat. Well, yeah, and also he's in a an athletic line of work, so he's like big, muscular, and he's got to like do this every night. And he's out smoking and drinking and like partying and shit. Like, yeah. Yeah. could you imagine? Yeah. Like, that's I would have died. You, yeah, I mean, well, you did. But uh, <laughs> I mean, not <laughs> to laugh at his dying. No, no. And actually, his death is really fucked up, and we'll get to that later. Um, so even though he saved up most of his money from tours in Hawaii and Northern California, Ricky Dozen still needed to raise vast sums of money 
uh, to bring uh, North American wrestlers to Japan. He pleaded with influential people to help him until they finally agreed. The key person was Sadoa Nakata, one of the most powerful promoters in the entertainment industry, who saw Mass's potential for success and decided to take uh, a chance on the new venture. During his time in the USA, Ricky Dozen learned how important television coverage was, and the success of pro wrestling was able to persuade Matsutaru Shoriki, the president of Nippon Television Network, which is like the big channel in Japan, to televise his first card throughout Japan. Ricky Dozen secured. Go on, you're going to say. When, when was this? This is, this the is 50s, like 1950s, 60s now? like 19, okay. er, early to mid 50s. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Ricky Dozan secured the services of Ben and Mike Sharp for a tour of Japan, knowing that it would probably cost a fortune to bring them in for the tour. As a tag partner, Ricky Dozan chose Masahiko Kimura, a popular judo expert who at one point was undefeated for 15 years. I need to talk about this guy because he's also important. Masahiko Kimura is famous for three things. The first thing being um, having the double underhook, double underhook wrist lock named after him in MMA. So whenever you hear of, oh my God, he's locked in a Kimura, it's named after this guy. Okay. So a Kimura lock, which is a double underhook wrist lock, which you can break someone's arm with very easily. It's named after this guy because he broke everyone's fucking arm with this shit. Um, he's also, the second thing he's known for, beating the absolute shit out of the Gracie family when he went on a jiu-jitsu tour of Brazil. He battered them senseless and they were nearly twice his size and he still beat them up. And also the third third thing he's famous for, an incident with Ricky Dozan that we'll get to shortly. It's fucking crazy. Um, Kimura had been cha- training in American style of pro wrestling and was more polished than the other few other choices that were available. He was a lot smaller, though. He was five foot six, five foot seven, about 170 pounds. So quite thin, very traditional judoku thing where they're all like just sinew and and muscle. Like there's no fat on them at all because they're rolling around for hours. And as opposed to Ricky Dozan, who's drinking and eating steak and smoking and <laughs> barely doing anything in the ring. Um, unfortunately, it is said that he was rather intractable. And appealed uh, appealed for more money until the very last moment. So he was constantly trying to get more money out of people. This guy, uh, Ben and Mike Sharp against Ricky Dozen and Masahiko Kimura introduced American style pro wrestling to a national audience. After Japan lost the war and had to question their entire identity as a superior imperialist race and power, the people of Japan and the whole country developed a massive inferiority complex. Um, that they were slowly able to dispel by pitting themselves against the Americans, who were actually Canadian. Uh, Mike and uh, what, what they called Ben and Mike Sharp were Canadian, but they oh. were like, "Hey, we're Americans. Hey, we're here to stay. You bunch of fucking idiots!" And the the, Amer- <laughs> the Japanese people ate that shit up. They were like, "Oh my god, get in there and beat that man to death!" And Ricky Dozen did. There you go. Hey, let it never be said that like the invading foreigner as like a, a horrific racist gimmick it draws heat and to this day people are still afraid of foreigners so it works everywhere it's not just a, a, to, to here and it's and not there. just america like the japanese <laughs> it's also part of the reason why godzilla 
was like so big because Godzilla is like this kind of embodiment of the Japanese identity after the bombs have been dropped on them and he overcomes death and destruction and always gets up and always fights back. And it's the same thing with Ricky Dozen. He never lost. This guy refused to job to everyone. He did not lose. It's hilarious. Um, so Ricky Dozan, their newfound national Japanese hero, who's actually Korean. That was a guarded secret, was per, uh, preser- uh, sorry preserved for decades because most Japanese people still look down on Koreans and treated them with absolute disdain. But this guy, oh no, this guy is the absolute epitome of Japan. He is the best thing we have going. He's Korean. You would you think... You would think that would present an opportunity where they could use that to make people not hate Koreans. You would think so, but they were so afraid to try it that they didn't. And Mm. interestingly, when this is reversed some 40 years later, so there is a famous show, the highest drawing cards in wrestling history happened in North Korea when WCW, particularly like the Road Warriors, Ric Flair a bunch of others teamed up with New Japan Pro Wrestling, specifically Antonio Inoki, and went to tour North Korea um, as part of a peacekeeping mission. Like Muhammad Ali was in on it. A bunch of famous people were in on it as well. The first card drew 160,000 people to this stadium. The second card drew 180,000 people. So that's, that's over 300,000 people in two days. That's big numbers. That's big numbers. Like you would not see that. And again, No one was clapping or smiling or anything like that. They were just like, we're here. If we leave, we get shot. We better watch this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That North Korea. Yeah, that North Korea. (laughs) (laughs) So um, Korean beats Canadians equal Japan beats Americans. That's it. It's so funny. So also, um, random thing. So the headline match both nights was um, Antonio Inoki who is from, we'll talk about him in this, who is from Japan via Brazil um, versus Ric Flair, who is about as American as it gets. He's basically Americana in in a (laughs) weird suit and all that shit. Um, Antonio Inoki, because obviously North Korea is not a big fan of Japan at all, uh, but they hate the Americans more. So in an effort to appeal to the North Korean audience, he said, my trainer was Ricky Dozan, and we in Japan venerate him, but actually he's Korean, he's from North Korea, and he taught me pride in the North Korean way of life, and how to be a good North Korean, and I'm here representing you, even though I'm Japanese, and I'm going to beat this American for you, and all of a sudden the North Koreans were like, fucking kill him! It's like 160,000 people. It worked too well. Ric Flair was like, I want to get out of this country and on the plane as soon as possible, because they were getting fucked with by people with guns everywhere. So, yeah, it it reversed over time, but yeah, that's that's total wrestling bullshit. Typical. Yeah, that is, yeah. North Korea, one place that I just don't really want to go. Never go to North Korea. They will arrest you for the, you sneeze at the wrong person, you're going to jail for life and you're eating grass until you die. So, don't do it. Don't ever go to uh, North Korea, even out of curiosity. Japan, so, I want to go to. Japan, I want to go to. Yeah, me too, because actually you've got a really fascinating culture. So I would really like to do that. Anyway, back to Ricky Dozan, the newfound Korean Japanese hero. Uh, television was a luxury f- uh, few could afford in their homes at this point. So for this main event, which is this tag team match between the Sharps and Ricky Dozan and Kimura, 
um, 220 giant uh, TV screens were set up in open spaces around Tokyo and near the capital, while others went to restaurants or appliance stores to watch the opening match. It's estimated that 45,000 people were attended, attended the first three shows, and thousands more watched wherever they could. Some splurged and actually bought televisions to watch the matches at home, so we actually boosted the national economy by doing this show. Wow. Um, yeah, so uh, Kimberly with uh, What's North Korea? Um, it's don't go there watch team america world police i feel like that's an accurate representation of what north korea is what's that one with seth rogan oh yeah um uh, the interview yeah, yeah. what's that yeah that's an accurate <laughs> representation of north korea i hear he Make likes up. that katie perry yeah he does and he's friends with dennis rodman so we're fine uh i'm sorry i've never heard of it um yeah kimberly if, if, if you're being serious go and google uh, North Korea, as well as Russell Brand. Man, it's going to be an interesting night for you. Um, <laughs> Ricky Dozen became a hero overnight as the tour continued and was named the founder of Japanese wrestling by wrestler promoter Bobby, Bobby Bruns, who added the Sharps were a sensation and we turned thousands away at the gate at every show. I've never seen anything like it. We had the sumo crowd tearing out their hair and boy were they glad to see us go. So they wanted the, the Americans to be beaten the fuck out of them. Um, so, although um, Masahiko Kimura gained a lot of attention and was paid generously as Ricky Dozan's partner, he grew tired of having to endure the constant punishment by the Sharp Brothers and having Ricky Dozan become the hero of every match. He was basically a bit jealous. So, with his earnings, he established the International Professional Wrestling Promotion in his hometown of Kamamoto. Um, several former sumo wrestlers uh, saw the potential of earning greater living in professional wrestling and began joining the ranks and took up the new sport. Women wrestlers, um, headlined by an accl the acclaimed Mildred Burke, who is one of the greatest wrestlers of all time, uh, an American wrestler, and the rough and ready Mae Young, who was still involved in incredibly physical wrestling angles 50 years later, well into her 80s, where the Dudley boys were throwing her off a fucking stage. She's like Whoa. 85. I know. It's the most insane shit you'll ever see in your life. You'll learn more about woman. wrestling. It's, it's kind of crazy. Mae Young was kind of like she'd be in the back play, gambling with the boys. This 80-year-old woman, like playing poker, smoking a cigar, slapping guys on the ass. Like, if you don't fucking hurt me, I'll hurt you back. And stuff. I'm like, oh, my God. Mae, calm down. Jesus. Um, and they also, so these women are touring Japan. They're one of the trailblazers of Japanese wrestling are these American women going over. Although the second US tour uh, by Ricky Dozen was considered a success, Kimura continued feeling disgruntled and broke kayfabe by telling a promoter in Gifu, which is like, I think it's a town. Anyway, um, we should determine who is the best wrestler in Japan. Ricky works only for show and he'll be no match if I fight seriously. Thing is, He's basically saying this is fake. So Oops. that's a problem. Yeah. And I get that Kimura is, is judokun and he's great at submissions, but he's like, he's tiny. He's five foot six and 170 pounds, whereas Ricky Dozan's five foot 10 and 250. He's also trained in martial arts as well and sumo. So he's kind of like three or four weight divisions bigger than this guy. Um, and that's like, a problem. Yeah, he, if he, he, he might be able to break his arm, but he could just fall on him and kill him. <sighs> yeah, or like punch him really fucking hard, which Ricky Dozan is good at. Anyway, the newspapers, of course, went with it. 
and some supported Kimura and others uh, sponsored Ricky Dozan, made um, write-ups in favor of him instead of the former Judokan. Anyway, Ricky Dozan wanted to be recognized as Japan's number one athlete, and Kimura was pressed for money because he was spending it on his own promotion. Um, but basically, it was floundering, so they used the um, kind of attention to set up a match. And in a pre-match meeting, it was agreed that the winner would become the first Japanese heavyweight champion and would be awarded 70% of the prize money. The oh. winner would then face um, another guy called Toshio Yamaguchi, also a former judokan, uh, the following month. In its... Um, it's said that Kimura secretly handed Ricky Dozen a letter. I mean, this isn't it's said. It actually happened. He handed him a letter asking for this match to end in a draw. So he was like, look, work with me. We'll go for a time limit draw, and then we'll have another match, and you can win. I just need money right now. I want you to work with me so I can make some money. Gotcha. Um, you can make more money. Ricky Dozan agreed to it. He was like, yeah, let's do a draw. We can draw another gate. I can get a bit more money. The draw will mean we can do a 50-50 split. Then we can do the 70-30 thing later. Love that idea. That's a great idea. Smart business decision, you. He had he didn't agree to it, really. Uh-oh. So in December 1954, a card featuring talent from Ricky Dozen's Japan Wrestling Association faced, faced off against wrestlers from Kimura's much smaller international pro wrestling promotion. The match between the two headliners was billed as sumo versus judo, but it was also, in fact, under pro wrestling rules. So this was a work. It was they had the match laid out. They were going to do certain things, and they were going to go to a draw. Um, fortunately, footage of this match still survives. I've watched it. It's really fucked up. So that Kimura has trained to go sixty minutes. He knows something's up when Ricky Dozen arrives, and he's clearly not been training for a sixty-minute match because he's bigger than ever. He's more muscular. He's taping his fists. Something's not right. Um, after 15 minutes, Ricky Dozan gave um, Kimura gave Ricky Dozan a subtle foul kick to the groin. Like it was, he was going for the stomach. He missed, but this is Ricky Dozan's cue to lose his shit, and he just went absolutely off and turned the match into a total shoot. And he starts throwing um, open hand strikes and chops to this guy's jaw and eye, and Whoa. starts smashing him around the face. And he hits him with an open hand strike. And his uh, right eye just shuts immediately, like something out of Rocky. It is just, boom, massive thing on the side of his head. Um, Kimura is completely stunned by this because he's not expecting it at all. Um, and he turns to the ref and he's like, he's fucked up my eye. What is going on? The referee goes, ah, you're fine. And just like, <laughs> Shut up and get on with it, you pansy. It's the same oh, thing boy. again. No emotion. As he turns around... Ricky Dozan kicks him a few more times and then punches him and he just crumples to the floor. It's a brutal knockout. He Ouch. knocks him out cold. And this is a guy who beat up the Gracies in, in Brazil when he was waiting for a fight. Um, Kimura's head bounces off the canvas. Um, he's messed up from the fight and his, the aura of him as a tough guy, it's gone forever. His drawing oh. power is gone and his promotion is fucked because he's their only draw. And he's just had the absolute shit beaten out of him by a man almost twice his size so kind of seems like he brought it on himself by yeah, breaking a little, little bit there and challenging i mean yeah 
I mean, it, the thing's in his favor, right? So he's helped Ricky Dozan, but he doesn't feel like he's getting his line share. So he breaks away, forms his own thing, and then slags off wrestling. He should have known that that was going to be a problem. And then when he was like, hey, want to make some money? Here's, here's this note. Can we have a draw? Yeah. And Ricky Dozan agrees to it. I'm amazed he thought it was going to go that way, but um, he gets beaten to a pulp after the match. The new champion, who is now holding the belt up high, was so excited that he brought the letter from his dressing room to the press and showed them the bell and the letter that Kimura had uh, written to him asking for a Broadway, a 60-minute draw. And he compl- he claimed that he refused to follow such a predetermined path. So he's just humiliated him as well. Ouch. Yeah. And that's kind of the end of Kimura's career. Like, he has been humiliated. He's been battered. There's no coming back from that. So, Wow. <laughs> And so he's just done then. He's just done. His his promotion folds and he can't really... I mean, he, he wrestles, but he's never a draw again. He's just like middle of the card, getting a little bit of money here and there. All because Ricky Dozen was like, I am going to fuck this guy up. I have had it. Yeah. If Yeah, it feels like he could have done that better, though. But, yeah. I mean, ego, he, ego will get you. It will. And actually, if you ask for money from someone who is... Like, you know they want to be number one. Why are you asking them to help you out? They're, they're kind of likely to fuck you over a little bit. Um, good point from Kimberly here. Should have known better. Hate. Um, he did him that bad, though. It, it's bad. He The the video's shocking because I've never seen an eye close up so quickly. Like, it is just massive hematoma on the side of his head. Yeesh. Immediately, it's disgusting. Um, before the match, newspapers ran stories questioning the legitimacy of wrestling. It's believed the match was planned to be a work from the start, but Ricky Dozan later decided to take the extreme measures to uh, uh, disprove the allegation of wrestling being fake. And it works, because after this, nobody in the press is saying that wrestling's fake, because they don't want to get punched in the face by this fucking enormous guy. So, there you you go. Yeah. The first six minutes of the nearly 16-minute match have been lost forever, but um, a lot of Kimura's backers say that the first half of the match is unavailable because Kimura was dominating, but it's a work that's highly unlikely. That's just uh, probably people doing it after the fact because he got so humiliated. Um, and also, um, Kimura was a terrible wrestler, like even worse than Ricky Dozan, so it's highly unlikely that the 60-minute bout would ever have happened because the, the crowd would have shit all over that. Like, it's lucky it went 15 minutes. You've got two people who can't wrestle. You imagine watching that for 60 minutes. Okay, yes, they're famous and they're big, but you don't want to watch that for an hour. They just chase each other around. Basically, yeah. Although, if if Kimura was smart, he would have just done that. Just run around the ring and let Ricky (laughs) Dozen get massively blown up. And like, oh, fuck it, I'm going to fall over. Um, (laughs) Ricky Dozen did reinforce the supremacy of his promotion, but the questionable ending of the bout caused the temporary wrestling boom to begin to cool a little bit because people were like, hmm, it was a bit unseemly, wasn't it? Kimura's reputation as a wrestler dropped substantially while Ricky Dozan's career continued to peak. Um, he also beat the guy he was supposed to do um, supposed to do a, a follow-up matchup with, which meant that Ricky Dozan claimed that there were no more worthy opponents in Japan. He never accepted another challenge by a Japanese wrestler and searched instead for international contenders because that's where the big money is. The Japanese guy beats the evil invaders. So he's like, I am Japan's number one. Just beaten the two big guys. In fact, did you see what I did to the first guy? Clearly I'm the best around. <laughs> now I'm going to fight Americans and make a shitload of money. So 
he gets wrestling yeah, and punching seems people like in the it. face. Yeah. Um, as a now, promoter, who's he going to punch in the face? Oh, everyone. He uh, <laughs> said around this time that um, Ricky Dozen started to develop, started to develop a rather haughty attitude, even towards people that had helped him fund his promotion and lend a hand to get things off the ground. If you understand what that means, so so he's, he's biting the hand that feeds him. Yeah. And the okay. hand that feeds him is already missing a few fingers, so it's probably not a good idea. Um, he was also accused of assaulting a Dutch Airlines employee in a nightclub. The news report described him as twice as big as most Japanese policemen, which is, is true. He's huge. Uh, short, but with arms like elephant legs. That's also accurate. He's fucking... In, like His upper body is huge. Um, as a national hero, Ricky Dozan was given leading roles in several films, but some reporters described a different picture of him behind the scenes. His fame was a false image. In actual life, he was nothing more than a moody drunk. Um, he sometimes got tangled up with thugs in a bar. He would punch out like his stunt doubles on sets, and Yikes. he sometimes failed to pay his cab, so he would just punch the cabbie and tell him to fuck off. Uh, <laughs> just not paying. Whatever. No, fuck you, smash. And wow. like just becoming a massive arsehole at this point. But he's Japan's hero. So he can get away with it. And also the yeah. police can't arrest him because they're scared of him. So Yeah. Well, what are you gonna do, right? Yeah, what are you gonna do? I know the uh the Yakuza. You're gonna fuck with <laughs> them as well. More than likely the police were under pressure from the influential politicians who supported Ricky Dozan who told the police to overlook his antics, most of which were kept from public knowledge. So He's got the the entire Japanese government supporting him at this point, being an arsehole. So um, the fame has definitely gone to his head. I mean, battering cabbies. Who fucking does that? I just Googled him. He looked like a problem. He was huge. He is... I've got a... And it's kind of hard to under, overstate this. This is before steroids. And his upper body is massive for, like... Yeah. A normal sized human being like your body should not be carrying that much weight it's not normal derek's about to show a picture here for the people yeah he is it's if you can imagine and for the people who are listening if you think of like a carnival strongman like the barrel chested strongman but like even bigger like he is a big dude and it's not like the bodybuilders where they're ripped to shreds you know he's he's actually super um bulky so it's it's kind of intimidating. So yeah, Goodness. that was Ricky Dozan for the people who wanted to watch that live. Um, oh boy, Derek! Yeah, he's a big boy. Um, so uh, the fame's definitely gone to his head. In 1956, one of Ricky Dozan's major backers, Shinzaku Nita, passed away, allowing Ricky Dozan practically full range of handling the promotion, uh, just passing out punches as payment. Yeah, that's, that's what's happening. Ricky Dozan lost one of his major backers, but he had a remarkable talent for building up a network of connections and succeeded in winning the favors of such big-name figures as Bombaku Ono, a rightist politician who worked with and received huge donations from the Yakuza, and Yoshio Kodoma, a shadowy ultra-nationalist and backstage power broker who also worked with the Yakuza. So, making friends... You know, dangerous friends dangerous dangerous friends Ricky Dozen offered them important posts within the JWA his wrestling promotion uh, their existence behind, he, uh, behind him enhanced his power base 
probably not the kind of people you want to be doing business with in the long term, though. Um, to monopolize the Japanese market, Ricky Dozan began to execute his plan to unify the Japanese wrestling groups under his Tokyo-based JWA. Later, during a special trip to St. Louis, Missouri, he was finally able to secure a long-term goal to have an NWA World Heavyweight Championship match in Japan, because this is the world title at this point. This is the the famous world title, and he's brought it to Japan. It was agreed upon that in 1957, Luthez, who was nicknamed Tetsujin, uh, translated as the Iron Man in English, would appear in five matches from October the 7th to the 25th. Since Ricky Dozan's JWA was not affiliated with the NWA, which charges like an entry fee and you get access to stuff, it's, it's, it's kind of like a Ponzi scheme. Um, he was required to post a $10,000 bond with its president, Sam Muchnick, for the Champions Tour. This is before the expenses. Like, you want our guy? You give us $10,000, uh, which is the equivalent to $109,000 in today's money. So, yeah. That's a lot of money. You pay for the tour and you give us the money. But he's getting 45,000 people a night for this shit. Like, he's going to be fine. Were they just um, worried he was going to open hand slap their eye closed or what? It, it's funny. I, I mean, yeah. <laughs> because the NWA heavyweight champion at this point in time, even the NWA didn't trust their champion. You had to pay $25,000 when you won the championship so that you could have the belt. And if you like fucked off with the bell or you stole it or you didn't agree to do what the NWA was going to do, you lost that twenty five grand. But when oh. you dropped the title the way they wanted you to to the person that they wanted you to, you got your money back. So it's an insurance uh-huh. policy. Clever. Um, but yeah, he wouldn't have done that to Luthez. Luthez would have absolutely wrecked this guy. He was very, very tough. Um, televised... Right, okay. So, Luthez versus Ricky Dozan. This is the first time it's ever happened on Japanese soil with the NWA Heavyweight Championship. The televised match drew 87% of all Japanese televisions. Wow. 87% of people in Japan who had a TV watched this match. That's, that's fucking insane. That is that's tons. That is that's millions of people. Just like oh. at a time when television was not really a thing. Um, according to an unofficial survey, it was reported that twenty-seven thousand people attended the stadium, and um, fifteen thousand people um, greeted Luthez at the airport. And he thought that a rock star was on the plane. He was like, what? <laughs> not him, me. See, you know what it was, is the other 13% were at the stadium. Yeah. That's why they weren't watching on TV. And actually, they were saying like 27,000 people in the stadium. Something like 10,000 were turned away. And like there were people trying to climb through like gaps and stuff because it was slightly open-aired. So they were trying to break in. That's crazy. That's one of those things. Anyway, Luthers recounts, we agreed to wrestle to a draw in our eight title matches. Carrying Ricky for 60 minutes was a tough job. We did that in Tokyo on the first night of the tour, but I suggested that we should not do the same in Osaka and the other cities. We took one fall each, and then we would both get counted out of the ring in the third fall. Our last match was held in Okinawa because we were able to get a big US dollar cash only in Okinawa in those days. After the tour, Ricky Dozen is quoted to have later said, Now that I have fought Luthez, the best in the world, I don't want to meet any other average wrestler in the ring. I'm feeling drained out. Bitch, you just got carried by Luthez. You did <laughs> shit. And he was like, I can't do this every night. We'll go to some screwy finishes because I can't carry you for 60 minutes, five nights in a row. That's too much. 
So the business did improve for a while, but in later tours, Ricky Dozen was obligated to borrow larger sums of money to keep JWA afloat to bring in foreign talent so they could beat the shit out of them. Again, many times these funds came from people involved in other sometimes shady business kind of people that hurt you if you don't pay them on time. Uh Uh-oh. So he's getting in debt with his own promotions and probably gambling. And gambling and smoking and punching cabbies and stuff like that. In 1958, he had to leave Japan for a month because, according to the book Japan, the Ricky Dozan years, his secretary, Yoshi Yoshimura, wrote Ricky Dozan used black market dollars to pay back the Yakuza. That's not a good idea. They probably had a picture of him. <laughs> he's, he's, what is it? What is a black market dollar? It's it's basically he's found his own printing press and he's making his own money. Oh, fake money. Yeah, it's fake okay. money. It's yeah, that's not a good thing. So he fled the country for a month, which that's I mean, I, I'm amazed he came back. But yeah, in turn, many of the Japanese wrestlers were very unhappy at not getting uh, compensated fairly, especially as most of the money was going on this, we'll talk about it later, failed real estate venture, Ricky Dozen's habit of drinking, smoking cigars, and gambling constantly, and they were getting paid peanuts, these wrestlers who were trained up. On the positive side, future stars, Shihohei Giant Baba, who was a famous um, baseball star, six foot nine, uh, Giant Baba, but also the weirdest physique you'll ever see on a professional wrestler, or even really a professional athlete, this guy was a very good baseball player. You have to look it up. Show So I'm going to have to spell it for you. You can just type in Giant Baba, and you will find a picture of this man. If you see him in his wrestling gear, he's got really small arms. But because he's six foot nine, he's fucking huge. He looks emaciated, but he was reasonably healthy for most of his life. So Giant Baba looks kind of weird. Not going to lie. Yeah, he does. Yeah. Just seen a picture, haven't you? Yes, I the have. arms are tiny and the body is large. Yeah. It's it's kind of I weird. I wonder. Here, yeah. I'll share it with everybody here. Yeah. Oh, share it with everyone. Uh, we've gone from one guy who's got a massive upper body and like tiny spindly legs and only five foot ten to someone who's a full foot taller oh, than him. Yeah, are we broken? Oh, there we go. It's just it's having a bit of a moment. So there's Shiohei Giant Baba. He's got. I think it's probably fair to say his arms are normal human size, but his body is enormous. Uh, he's six foot nine, regularly wrestled against and with Andre the Giant. So the I've sight of those, of those two in the ring at the same time. Yeah, yeah, that's um, that was a big thing. This is him towards the end of his career in like the eighties, I think. So he's looking even more emaciated there. But yeah, it's um, it's a weird look. Shihoe Giant Baba, former um, baseball player, becomes a pro wrestler. Also a very shrewd businessman, incredibly intelligent, but also quite shy. The other person that was trained alongside him exactly the same time, in fact, they debuted on the same card, was Antonio Inoki, who was exactly the opposite. He's very T-Rex looking. He is Kimberly. You're right. It's it's kind of weird. Um, Antonio Inoki, who came to Japan via um, Brazil, as I mentioned, um, he passed away recently, and he was... Very brash, very arrogant. And his version of wrestling was, let's make me the center of attention, whereas Shihohei Giant Baba was like, I want to make people famous. I want to make these really good young wrestlers famous using the King's Road, which is his method of making people superstars. Whereas Antonio Inoki was like, I am the toughest person in history. 
therefore I will make myself the toughest person in history using my own promotion. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and um, Antonio Inoki went on to have a, a famous shoot match against um, Muhammad Ali in the mid to late 70s. Yeah, and that was a whole mess. It was basically the first MMA match ever, and it really? drew millions. Yeah, oh yeah. And they changed the rules at the last minute because Muhammad Ali was like, you can't take me down, I'm not having you take me down. You're not allowed to throw those overhand palm strikes as well. So, giant. So, um, Antonio Inoki lay on his back and just kicked up the entire time and just fucked up uh, Muhammad Ali's legs, and, and that went on for ages. So, kind well, of garbage, really. No I was one wants say to say I wanted it. to watch it, and then now I don't. Yeah, you don't want to watch that. It's boring <laughs> as fuck. Um, if anything, you want to watch um, Kimura get battered by Ricky Dozen. It's like it's short and it's gross. Uh, also, Hiro Matsuda was a student of Ricky Dozan's. He left very quickly after that to go to America to pursue his dream of wrestling on the U.S. circuit. He was part of um, epic matches against Danny Hodge of Oklahoma, who's probably the toughest wrestler of all time. This guy crushed apples with his bare hands just for the fun of it. He's also an Olympic wrestler, Olympic boxer. This guy was tough as nails. And in Tampa, Florida, he helped launch the... He became... Hiromatsuda became a trainer of his, his own guys, including Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, Lex Luger, B. Brian Blair, Steve Cairn, uh, Ron Simmons, Farouk, and some guy called Hulk Hogan. Hey, I know uh, four of them. There you go. <laughs> yeah, so that's Hiromatsuda, who was trained by Ricky Dozan, trained Hulk Hogan and Farouk and a bunch of Lex Luger and other people. That's a, um, that's a six degrees of Kevin Bacon right there. That is, yeah. And I think Kevin Bacon was trained by Hiro Matsuda as well. So. <laughs> um, despite several rocky years, Ricky Dozen, after several successful world tournaments and international leagues, competed uh, completed the Ricky Sports Palace on July the 30th, 1961. It was built to resemble the Honolulu, Honolulu Civic Auditorium and would be the new venue for TV wrestling, which he built. He built this place. And it's it's hard to describe. The magnificent facility was also equipped with 12 bowling alleys, a sauna, and a restaurant. Sounds like a dream. Yeah, it does. Right? Yeah, yeah, just go there, have some bowling, sit in the sauna, then have a meal. That's your whole day right there. Fuck that. That's amazing. Um, as his wrestling days drew to a close, Ricky Dozan had many other businesses, including a luxury apartment rental business, which... It's not going so well. A nightclub, which he spent all his time in, and presented a grand plan for a golf course to the press. None of them made money, and they were all fronts for Yakuza money lottery. Oh, that's why they didn't make money. That's why they didn't make money. They didn't need to. They just had to be vanity projects. Um, Back over in the States, an aging Freddie Blassie, classy Freddie Blassie, became a huge draw in L.A. He's in his 50s at this point, Freddie Blassie. And Ricky Dozen wanted to bring him over. Freddie Blassie is another person who has a claim to fame. There's a lot of this in wrestling. He was one of the best promos, the interviewers in history. So when wrestlers build up stuff, they do interviews and they can be quite dramatic. Some of them are really good. And The Rock is a perfect example of that, Dwayne Johnson, uh, in wrestling. And he became such a big star that he took the word geek from where it was in the carny world. A geek was someone who would stick chickens' heads in their mouths or strangle chickens and stuff. And he introduced it to popular culture in the mainstream on television in his promos. He would describe all of his opponents as pencil-necked geeks. And that's Ah. where the word geek entered popular culture, was classy Freddie Blassie's promos. I think I've seen some of them. 
Yeah. And I, I hadn't known what I was watching until now. Exactly. And Classy Freddy Blassie, also the inspiration behind Muhammad Ali's interview technique. Muhammad Ali took all of his interview technique mm-hmm. and used it in his promos for all of his boxing work. And even Freddy Blassie became a close friend of um, Muhammad Ali for a very long time. I think he might have outlived him as well, which is something because he was a lot older than him. Um, to set up Blassie's eagerly awaited tour of Japan, a video was sent of him. I didn't know that. Yeah, you see, the thing is, I know too much about wrestling because <laughs> I used to be a wrestling journalist, so I know all of this stupid shit that I don't need. Um, to set up Blassie's eagerly awaited tour of Japan, a video was sent of him filing his teeth and sadistically biting his opponents. He filed his fucking teeth down. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is where it gets dark. Once he arrived, he was more over than any other heel in the history of wrestling in Japan. He was given the nickname, and I'm going to butcher this, Kayu Ketsuki. Actually, I did quite well. Nailed it. Kayu Ketsuki, <laughs> which translates to vampire. Yeah. Ah, okay. After a reporter spotted him filing his teeth in the airport, so he's like, you know, uh, he's getting into duty free, you know, getting packs of cigarettes, getting those massive Toblerones that you get in airports and just filing away at his teeth. Yikes. Um, yeah, scary. On April the 22nd, 1962, Blassie teamed with Luthez and Mike Sharp and made an impression with the audience watching on TV. During the six-man tag match in Kobe, which aired live on television, Blassie predictably, predictably sunk his teeth into his opponent's vulnerable forehead. Uh, the guy had shaved his head specifically so that you could get a really good look at this. Um, and the NTV camera zoomed in for the sanguinary, sanguinary close-up. It was reported that the sight of... And the blood was everywhere. Like, this guy started yeah. bleeding on national television. The first time this had happened in a wrestling match in Japan, properly. Um, the sight of the blood pouring from the great Togo's forehead caused four elderly men to die of heart attacks. Ah. He killed people. <laughs> oh, my God. I know. Well, I know your head bleeds more, usually, right? Oh, so, yeah. I guess... Mm-hmm. Goodness. Unless, actually, so here's the thing. This is what happens. Wrestlers pop an aspirin before a match if they're going to bleed. Uh, if they're going to bleed, they pop an aspirin because it thins out your blood and the blood goes everywhere and you're not losing as much blood, but it looks like you are. Also, they do this thing called blading where in their wristbands or in the tips of the fingers, which they also put tape around, they'll have a tiny little razor blade, the tip of a razor blade, and they'll just do a couple of little cuts on the foot. It's gross. Right, but that's what Freddie Blassie was doing. He was going over and like pretending to bite, but at the same time he was going neat, neat, neat like that with a little razor blade and getting all of the blood. And he killed four people on television. Good lord, by doing that—that's crazy. Four old guys passed away watching Freddie Blassie bite someone's head. Um, <laughs> that's the news insane. Was, that is kind of crazy. <laughs> the news was reported in every newspaper the following day, and it became an um, an important social issue. One media report said 11 people had passed away. More than 50 were taken to hospital, so the exaggeration was kind of out. But yeah, I can't let ice touch my teeth. And there's this guy filing his... Jesus Christ. It's true, Kimberly. That's that's so dark. Um, so we didn't... That's it. Kanesuke Taguchi of Weekly Gong Magazine wrote in Japan which is an orderly society, and that's an important thing to talk about as well. We didn't understand this maniacal kind of behavior. Only 50% of the population had TVs, so big groups of people sat together to watch wrestling. There still wasn't an, an understanding of the distance between yourself and the television. It was like Freddie Blassie was coming into your house trying to kill you. 
and they were all sitting there watching like this. Yeah, and like, and they they're right as well. This is again post-war Japan, still very conservative, very orderly, uh, patriarchal, hierarchical society. Respect your elders. Do not question the leadership and stuff. And this blonde-haired American man is coming over and biting your guys in the head and bleeding. And old men are dropping dead. Um, you want to see that shit? You know, you want to see that man get beaten up? Yeah, Ricky did, did somebody going to get him? Ricky doesn't beat the shit out of him. Although ah. it's it's important to point out that um, Freddie Blassie was stabbed more than once in his career for real. That's how hot he got these crowds. He wow. was really effective as a heel. Um, on the what was it on July twenty fifth, nineteen sixty two, in Los Angeles, Blassie defeated Ricky Dozan after referee Johnny Red Shoes Dugan stopped the match because of excessive bleeding on Ricky Dozan's part. Ricky Dozan had defeated. The vampire-like Blassie nine times in a row during the tour before the loss. So, like, he beat him a bunch of times in Japan, and then he went over to LA, where he would have got a huge payoff because Freddie Blassie was a big draw in LA, and they were doing the Olympic Coliseum and shit there. They were drawing like tens of thousands of people there, or whatever it was. Um, the big Coliseums out there, and um, yeah, basically Freddie Blassie got his wins back. So. That's that's how the business works. Like, I get one, you get one. We'll both bleed. We'll make a shitload of money. Gotcha. So there's a, there's a saying in wrestling: red equals green. So yeah, that's that's what they did. Um, this is where a wrestler called Hardboiled Haggerty enters the picture now to share a story about Ricky Dozan two months before he died. The night I wrestled Ricky Dozen in Tokyo, October the 1st, 1963, a group of men walked up to me before the match and said, "If Ricky loses, you'll never leave Japan alive." Whoops. Um, let me tell you, Ricky Dozan never looked as good as he did against me that night. With his <laughs> fucking flying shoes on. So they took that shit very seriously in Japan. Um, now let's get to the really crazy... I mean, it's been crazy already, but this is the one of the craziest deaths I've ever heard of in my life. On April the 8th, 1963, Ricky Dozan had been drinking with Takasoko, Takasogo, a sumo stable master um, asking for Ricky Dozan's contracts to help him promote their upcoming event and schedule a tour in Los Angeles. So him and Ricky Dozan would be doing a business lunch and they just started drinking at like midday or something. Um, it's the 60s. Everyone's drinking at midday at this point. Later, he made a guest appearance on a radio program for a popular female actress, um, Yakuji Asakoa. He talked a lot and sang a popular song but looked like an idiot and was kicked out of the studio because he was completely plastered. He was doing an Ollie Reed. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, it's after lunch now, several hours later, he's drunk and he's like, yeah, I'm here, let me sing you a song. Oh my God. <laughs> later that evening, he went to the new Latin Quarter Club in Akasaka District and continued drinking heavily after throwing insults towards the bemused musicians on stage. So he's like harassing everyone at this point. Ricky Dozan encountered Ketsushi Murata, a young 24-year-old. I should point out Ricky Dozan's pushing 40 at this point. He's 42, 41, something like that. Um, he encounters Katsushi Murata, a young 24-year-old, and a member of the Ninkuja Dantai Sumashushi Ika, a sub-branch of the Yakuza, bumps into him near the men's room. They have an argument because Ricky Dozen accuses him of standing on his foot, and Murata's like, I don't stand on your foot, you're fucking gigantic, I couldn't avoid it. <laughs> um, they had an argument, and Ricky Dozen again, as he does, 
lost his mind, um, started beating the shit out of this guy, um, threw him down a flight of stairs, Ooh. and started ramming him into walls, just like um, crazy fight all over the place. Murata is terrified, and because he's a member of the Yakuza, he pulls out a knife and stabs Ricky Dozan. Whoops. As you do. Yeah. yeah. The police were called and Murata was arrested. Ricky Dozan's entourage persuaded him to see a surgeon. He was like, no, I just, I don't want to leave. I've just been stabbed. It's fine. Um, rub, rub some Robitussin on it. Yeah, just like, yeah, just get, there we go. Yeah, just get a bit of spit tape. on it. Yeah, have you got any dirt? <laughs> just rub some dirt on it. Um, but he did not want to attract attention because didn't want to ruin his reputation because again the japanese government is covering for his ass with all the stupid yeah. shit he's doing so instead Rippy, ricky dozen goes to an obstetrics and gynecology hospital nearby <laughs> um this this gigantic gentleman is bleeding everywhere we're trying to give women really like delicate examinations here can you go away please shut up i'm ricky dozen treat me um basically four parts of ricky dozen's small intestines were pierced the wounds were so serious that they were they um, asked a nearby hospital surgeon to perform an abdominal operation on him in this gynecology ward. The surgeon patched him up, removed all bits of like his lower intestine, gave him a bunch of anti, uh, gave him a bunch of drugs and painkillers and stuff like that, and said, "Go home, rest. Don't do anything for a month. Don't leave bed. Just eat and rest and sleep." And he said, "Fuck you, doc. I'll live forever." And ran off and left the hospital, went back into the night so he could continue drinking and smoking like nothing had happened. So he, he had surgery. On. Surgery. He starts the day having a nice lunch with his mate and drunken radio interview, fight, stabbing, hospital for surgery, back out on the night, drinking again. They're... Okay, I mean, that seems normal. That seems like standard behavior for a lunatic. Um, so <laughs> days later, it's, it's, he's he's fine. Continue drinking, partying. He was fine. Just went over and got a hangover. Oh, why does my tummy hurt? Um, days later, Murata and half a dozen Yakuza show up at Ricky Dozan's house. Um, they drag Murata into the house before he meekly apologizes to Ricky Dozan, likely under the threat of death. He's being held by his collar by two guys, like being pinned down like that. The Yakuza guys made the Yakuza guy apologize. Yep. yep. Wow. Made, made made their guy apologize for stabbing Ricky Dozan, who, again, drunkenly trying to beat the shit out of this guy. So that's how revered this guy is that's, at this point. That's kind of crazy. Yeah, that's something else. Yeah, so he apologizes, and they tell him that if he doesn't apologize properly, they will kill him. Um, Ricky Dozan accepted, and Murata left with his fingers still attached to his hand and his head still on his body. Uh, Ricky Dozen's condition, however, took a turn for the worse. Who could have seen that coming? And he died on December the sixth, the fifteenth, nineteen sixty-three, of an internal hemorrhage and peritonitis. That is a painful way to die. Whew. Uh, that doesn't fun. sound fun. No, that does not sound fun. Especially, well, mind you, he probably wouldn't have felt it because he was drunk all the time. Um, five days later, after his funeral on December the twentieth, about twelve thousand people attended Ricky Dozen's funeral at Akigami. Honmonji Temple in Tokyo. A section of Honmonji Temple at in Ottawa Ward, Tokyo, is dedicated to him. There's a big bronze statue of Ricky Dozan uh, in the upper part of his body. Probably didn't want to bother with the spindly legs. 
um, <laughs> in, fr- <laughs> in front of the stone monument on the left is the tomb where he's buried. He's got his own tomb in this like ancient temple. It was reported that he was 39 years old at the time of his death. Others believe his true age was about 41, 42, something like that. Masahiko Kimura, the judoku who Ricky Dozen beat the shit out of, commented about Ricky Dozen's death, saying, it was not Murata, but me who killed Ricky Dozen. I cursed him to death. Whatever, you angry little weirdo. Um, that was like years later. I know. you. Your curse loser. is weak. Your curse is pathetic. <laughs> and also, like, if you cursed him to drink and have fun, he was already there, mate. So, uh, yeah. Murata, the man who actually did kill Ricky Dozen with the stab, although months later he died, was found guilty of murder and served. I, I think that would be self-defense. I'm, I'm not saying you should stab people, but I feel and the, the beating was merciless and, cons- like, he was chasing him around the building and beating him mercilessly. I feel like it's self-defense at that point. So yeah, if somebody's beating me and throwing me downstairs and yeah, throwing me into walls, I might get slamming my head into walls. Yeah, I will get. I will go for your eyes. I will. <laughs> I will. I will fight like a cat. Like I, yeah, <laughs> and that will be my self-defense claim. Um, so he's sentenced to murder, but he only gets seven years, likely because it was self-defense to a certain extent, and also yakuza. So gets a much lighter sentence. He's out in less than five. So after he was released, he started a tradition where every single year he made an annual pilgrim pilgrimage to the statue of Ricky Dozan to beg forgiveness until uh, Murata died himself in 2013. Every single year he went to that statue to beg for forgiveness. Man. Um, yeah. His daughter, Hikaria Shinohara, who became a pro wrestler and an MMA fighter, said she had been an object of contempt as the daughter of the killer of Ricky Dozan throughout her entire career. This guy's been dead for 60-something years. His daughter was still getting shit for it decades later. That's it's, crazy. And that's the life of Ricky Dozan, who it, was a massive arsehole but very powerful. It blows me away, like the whole tradition and holding on to... Yeah, stuff like that. Like, yeah, they hated him because he was Korean or North yeah. Korean or well, it wasn't North Korea at the time until later. But. Yeah, exactly. It was. It would have been Korea, but they didn't know. And actually, eventually, when they found out, because after he died a few years later, they wanted to make sure that because people were still using his name to draw money. Eventually, they were like, "Okay, Ricky Dozen was actually from Korea," and Japan was like. Oh yeah, I guess we kind of moved on from that shit now, but man, we treated them badly, you know. So it still seems like it would have been a perfect opportunity to stop treating them badly and be like, oh, I, I guess know. they're not so bad. We like we like them. Yeah, exactly. Wow. This one guy was our <laughs> national hero. Yeah, we thought he was Japanese, and he beat all of our top guys. Like he genuinely beat one of our top guys, and maybe they're not so bad. But actually, no, although that made. would make it a scary invader. Yeah, it would. It would. Like, oh my god. Our top Japanese guy was actually Korean and he beat the shit out of an actual Japanese guy. Oh my god. Yeah, so it's it's a double-edged sword, but I feel like they've moved on now. Ricky Dozen is still held in wide regard, particularly in like combat sports and, and professional wrestling, but also people have looked at his legacy and gone, he treated people awfully. A lot of the people he entrusted to train his young guys beat them a lot. Like really quite viciously 
And that's a tradition that has unfortunately carried on. The Japanese dojos for professional wrestling until very recently are brutal or were brutal. Even the, the women's ones. There's a documentary about women's wrestling Japanese dojo. And one woman's like, you're not throwing a dropkick hard enough. So she throws her off into the ropes and blasts her in the face full force with both of her feet. And she just immediately starts bleeding and crying. She's like, what are you crying for? Mm. So he started that tradition. It's worrying. Well, there gained him some extra points right there. <laughs> yeah. Um, plus the drinking and the fighting and the smoking and the beating of the cabbies and random people. Yeah, so. and I like I like this one right here from Bright Eyes. Surprised he didn't punch the surgeon. <laughs> Love that. That's really funny. Yeah. It would have made sense. It would have done it. It was like the surgeon, you're telling me to go home and sleep. Fuck <laughs> you. <laughs> um, gosh, what a wild story. Yeah, kind of crazy. I didn't I didn't initially want to cover this guy, but when I heard the story, and particularly his death, he's like he's got he's come from nothing because he was a poor farmer from Korea, worked his way up, sometimes in a really dodgy way. And when he became as powerful as he was, he became a massive asshole, basically, and made a lot of money, became very powerful, but he enjoyed life on his terms, beat people up who didn't agree with him, and then got stabbed as a result of it. So there's yeah. your lesson. Yeah, that, that is the lesson right there. Yeah. Don't throw people downstairs and into walls and be a massive <laughs> asshole. You're going to get stabbed. Yeah, it doesn't Eventually. matter how powerful or influential you are. It doesn't matter how many people in the government have got an eye on you. If you piss off the wrong person, you're going to get stabbed. So yeah. we're bit in the fort. Oh, wait, no, that was part of the thing. Yeah, that was a word. Yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah, he gets points too for killing four people by scaring uh, yeah, them to death. <laughs> for Freddie Blassie, just randomly killing four Japanese people on TV. That's crazy. I'm really not sure how to score him, though. Just for being no. a prick, he should get like a 75, I think. Sure. That's, that's totally fine. Because I, the, the main reason I wanted to tell this story was just how powerful he was and how much he abused that power. Like, he didn't use it for any good. There's no charitable work here. There's no, like, I am going to build shelter for, like, I'm going to try and help Koreans in Japan who are being discriminated against. His thing was, I'm going to make as much money as possible, and I'm going to blow it all on gambling and booze and shit like that. And actually, so. yeah, I want to give him more points and go 79 because of the, the legacy of beating and brutality and stuff. Uh, yeah. that he's created for the continuing wanting to be wrestlers in Japan. Yeah. So they're like, yeah, oh, you I want to be a wrestler? Okay. Dude? Yeah. The 79 is, is totally fair because he didn't kill anyone. He did beat a lot of people, though. So, yeah. yeah. Like, to, he was a bit of a puncher. So, which, was, um, yeah. Quite the <laughs> legacy. I'm going to punch people. I don't even want to pay this cabbie. I'm going to punch him. So that's Ricky Dozan, the the grandfather and godfather, godfather of Japanese wrestling. And who is your guy again? The crazy uh, Edward Hammond Clark. Edward Hammond Clark, the Harvard professor who, for all of his amazing work, was as absolutely unscientific as any human being has ever been when discussing women. Uh, kind of insane, really. And I had a lot of fun researching this one. I, I'd wanted to do a couple of other people, but then I happened across this story again. I mean, I could do loads of people from wrestling, but I don't think everyone wants to hear that all the time, so I kind of spread them out like every 
20 episodes or something. <laughs> but um, I'm re- I was really fascinated by the Harvard guy. That was kind of mad. I Yeah, I learned... I, I always learned something because I gen, genuine, generally know nothing. Like I learn stuff and then it off it goes. Yeah, I feel like that's. I think I've discussed this before. Like if I were, people say, "Oh, why don't you try and take up this? Or why don't you try and learn that?" I I feel like if I took up anything else or tried to learn something else, I might forget how to drive. So I don't want to force any more knowledge out of my head. I, I <laughs> will try and be more empathetic, but I don't know if I'm learning anything majorly new in my life at this point. So. I'm actually looking for uh, people to cover. So if anybody's got suggestions, go ahead and shoot those over to me. Yes, please. And you can shoot those over to us by following us on Instagram. And that's at History's Greatest Idiots or go on X slash Twitter, whatever that is, at Greatest Idiots. You can also find us on YouTube. All of our videos are available live and exclusive on youtube so just search for history's greatest idiots on youtube you will find us there and also if you would like to join kimberly and andrew and jesse and be one of our wonderful patrons and get a bunch of cool behind the scenes stuff and exclusive uh presents as well as gifts for joining you can go to patreon.com slash history's greatest idiots and support us financially and help us achieve more amazing milestones like maybe we can crack the top 10 history podcasts in instead of number 11 and maybe we can get another independent podcast award next year we'll see nomination it's just yeah. it's nice to be nominated let's be honest I, yeah i want i want to go to one of these award shows yeah me too so I, the thing is i wouldn't necessarily appreciate it because i don't drink and i'm quite antisocial. so um yeah uh, i me too <laughs> yeah. I know, yeah, it's it's I like gatherings, but I don't like people. It's weird. It's that line from Clerks. Um, I missed Toast today. He's the official HHI commentator. Yes, Toastazoid wasn't with us, but that's fine. I'm sure he's okay. Don't worry about Toasty. We'll we'll give him a big shout out. We miss you, Toastazoid. Please come back. We we love you. Please, please come back to us. Um, Did we come off schedule or something? I don't know. I think maybe, yeah, I, I'm not sure, but he he's got a life. He's allowed to yeah. not be here, you know. Yeah. He's our official transcriber, but he's allowed to not be here. So <laughs> thank you guys so much. Um, yeah, like I said, you can also uh, get our podcast anywhere. It's available, Spotify, um, Apple, Google. We're also available on Amazon. So if you've got one of those stupid things sat in the background like I do over there that listens to you night and day, hey. you can say, hey, name of the thing play the latest episode of history's greatest idiots please and it will do that and you can listen to us in the background or leave us on in the background while you go out for your pets and slowly drive them insane so (laughs) (laughs) clawing at the door to get out no god it's the welsh man again so thank you guys so much we'll probably be back in a couple of weeks um derek would you like to say goodbye please goodbye everybody goodbye and we will see you all again very soon take care now bye